Well, this evening we come to the end of our series on God's moral law. And in some ways, we end where we began. The tenth word is about disordered love. To covet is to love and desire things that God calls us not to love. And this is where the Decalogue begins. The first word is also about disordered love. To worship false gods is also to love and desire things that God calls us not to love. And so the moral law has these two bookends that remind us of what is fundamental to who we are and why we exist. We exist to love God, we exist to glorify God, and we exist to enjoy him forever. That's what we were created for. And that's what God wants to convey to us in his holy law. And of course, as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve, we no longer love God or glorify God or enjoy him as we ought. Our loves and our desires are disordered because of sin. And so the law now exposes our sin and and thus our need for Christ, our need for mediation, our need for atonement. But the law also reminds us that if you are a son or a daughter of the living God, this is how you are to live. As Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the wonderful truth of the gospel is that if you are abiding in Christ, even though the effects of sin still linger in your mind and in your body, if you are abiding in Christ, your desires and your, your loves are renewed day by day. And if you think about it like this, the, the moral law, the ten words, they are a picture of Jesus Christ. As the God-man, Jesus Christ is the perfect lawkeeper. He's the only one to have ever kept every commandment perfectly. And if the Christian life is about uh, becoming more like Christ, that means that as we grow in sanctification, we, we should expect greater obedience to God's law. We should look more like the ten words as we grow in grace. And of course, we'll never be fully conformed to the image of Christ in this life, right? With the Apostle Paul, uh, we eagerly await the day when Christ will return and deliver us from these bodies of death, our glorification. But we do know in this life that God expects us as spiritual trees to bear spiritual fruit. And the paradox of the Christian life is both knowing that we'll never be perfect and yet still striving to holiness. It's knowing that we will wrestle with sin, we will do battle against the flesh until the day we die, but also knowing and expecting that we will bear fruit in keeping with repentance, that we will grow in Christ's likeness as we walk in step with the Spirit. So let's now specifically look at this final commandment. How does this guide us as we seek to walk by the Spirit. Well, if you look with me in your Bibles, you'll notice that the tenth word kind of sticks out from all the rest. At face value, all the other commandments, these are tangible things. They're, they're actions, right? Don't kill, don't fornicate, don't steal. But the tenth commandment is, 
It's intangible. It's, it's the only one that is overtly focused on our thought life. And why is that? Well, here's my theory. My theory is that the tenth word is the, the capstone of God's moral law because it, it gets to the root of every other commandment. Right? Why is it that we are idolatrous? Why is it that we worship false gods? Because we sinfully desire earthly things above God. Why do we commit murder? Because we sinfully desire the demise of our neighbor. Why do we steal? Because we sinfully desire that which does not belong to us. So the tenth word really demonstrates to us that Jesus' teaching on the moral law should have been basic review for Israel. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus teaches his disciples that adultery is the fruit and lust is the root, he's showing us what is embedded right here in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. He's showing us that it is sinful desire that gives way to sinful actions. Our battle with the enemy, it it begins in the heart. If we simply fixate on do's and don'ts, we will slip into legalism. The gospel needs to take root in our lives before our behavior can change. And this is why the tenth word is so important, because in case you miss the whole point of the moral law, Here at the end, we see that God cares not just about your actions, but he cares about your heart. He wants your desires. He wants your affections. And since this is uh, Reformation Sunday, I want you to listen to the way one of my favorite Reformed confessions describes this. The Heidelberg Catechism says that the tenth word is all about the heart. Here's what it says that God requires of us from Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. It says, God requires that not even the least inclination or thought against any of God's commandments ever even enter our heart, but that with our whole heart we continually hate all sin and take pleasure in all righteousness. It's putting off, it's hating sin and loving Christ. It's saying no to sin and yes to Christ. And we do that by, by keeping in step with the Spirit, by delighting in Christ, by renewing our mind. Well, biblically speaking, what does it mean to covet? Covet is not a word we often hear today, and I understand that uh, some Americans say covetousness instead of covetousness. Um, but the word covet often will have a neutral sense. For example, you might hear someone say, oh, I covet your prayers, right? Uh, And in that sense, covet simply means desire. But in the scriptures, the sin of covetousness, it, it refers specifically to the desire of forbidden things. And we see this more pointedly in Deuteronomy's account of the giving of the law, Um, In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 21, it reads slightly differently and it sheds some light on what exactly it means to covet. Deuteronomy chapter 5 says, And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house. In Exodus 20 it says, you shall not covet. But 
Deuteronomy chapter 5 accentuates this. It is the desire of things that are off limits that is sinful. So the sin of covetousness in the Bible is directed towards desiring people, desiring things that are off limits. And God gives specific examples here, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, servants, donkeys. And then notice the end. There's this blanket statement that is all-encompassing. In case you missed it, it's anything that is your neighbor's. So I want to spend the rest of our time answering two questions. Firstly, what is the problem with coveting? And secondly, what is the antidote to coveting? Well, firstly, what is the problem with coveting? The basic problem with coveting is that when we covet, we reject God's providence, we reject his sovereign authority. When we covet, we are shaking our fist at God. We are saying, I want what you have seen fit not to give to me. When we covet, we are saying, I am fundamentally discontent with my lot, with my station in life. When we covet, we are seeking first the kingdom of me, myself, and I. In Joshua chapter 7, we see the sin of covetousness and we see the effects that it has corporately. Israel is in the midst of battle at Jericho. And God commands Israel not to keep the spoils of war, but to devote them to the Lord. And we see the sin of Achan. We see that Achan succumbs to his desire for more. This is what Achan says in Joshua chapter 7, verse 21, as he confesses his sin. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. With Achan, we see this principle in play that that sinful inward desires lead to sinful actions. And we see that our sin not only affects us, but our sin of covetousness affects others. And the devil constantly tries to lie to us. He says, your sin only affects you. It doesn't affect anyone else. But in the story of Achan, we see The sin of covetousness affects all of Israel. Sin has corporate effects. It it harms the whole body. And this is true of us as new Israel, as the church, as the Israel of God. Paul tells us that we are one body with many members. The spiritual health of each member affects the whole church. When we covet the things of this world, when we covet the, the gold and the silver of this world, whether it be stature or power or recognition, we do great harm to the body of Christ. Think about this. Churches that covet worldliness, that want the things of the world, that want the spoils of this present evil age, they, they've lost sight of the mission You see, the church is the ark of safety. The story of Noah and the ark, right? That it's a sort of metaphor for for the church in the world today. The church is the ark where we can find safe passage from this present evil age 
to the Jerusalem that is above. And this is why we confess that there is no ordinary possibility of salvation outside of the church. The church is God's vessel of redemption that carries battle-worn saints and pilgrims to the celestial city. So, So why should we covet the things of this present evil age? We must remember, as the Apostle John writes, that the world is passing away along with its desires. The desires of this world, they lead to destruction. They have no place in the bride of Christ. And so I urge you this evening to reflect upon your own heart. Are you marrying worldly ideology with Christian belief in any way? Are you baptizing worldly ways of thinking with Christian language because you want to be more palatable to a world that is perishing? The Holy Spirit urges us to set our minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. And the Holy Spirit goes on to speak through Paul in Colossians 3, and he he, he tells us that coveting is an example of setting your mind on the things that are on earth. It's idolatry, Paul says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. We must remember that the old sin of Israel and her relentless desire to be like the nations around her led to her death. And Israel's coveting of the world in the Old Testament is is meant to teach us, as the new Israel, not to make the same mistakes. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10 that these things, the the stories of Israel and her wilderness wanderings, her, her sinful plight, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Brothers and sisters, Israel's corporate history is our corporate history, and so So we must be on guard against the sins of the past. We must be on guard against importing worldly behaviors or worldly ways into the bride of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, if we covet the things of this world more than we love Jesus, we will inherit eternal death. We are responsible for our desires. This is what James reminds us of in James chapter 1, that that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So as we think about this tenth word, we must remember that the battle begins in the heart. And so we must be killing sin, or sin will be killing us, as John Owen once said. Well, the problem with coveting is not only that it leads to death, but that it leads to despair. Some of you may uh, remember the old Rolling Stone song, I can't get no satisfaction, no satisfaction. I'm not going to sing it for you, but uh, the, the song captures the spirit of our age. We live in a world that is obsessed with wanting more, and yet cannot find more satisfaction. We're always dreaming up the next big thing and 
uh, advertisers spend billions of dollars on capturing our attention spans because they understand our human nature. They know that we just want more and more and more. The blessing of same-day delivery from Amazon can also be a curse. Right? We feed our appetite for more. And why do we feed this appetite? Why, why do we covet? Why do we give in to the, the sinful desire for more and more? Well, it's because we believe that if we just have the latest and greatest, if we just have that new kitchen appliance, if we just have the latest tech gadget, well, then, then we'll be happy. If we just had a bigger house, if we just had a nicer car, if, if we just had a better home life, if we just had a better paying job, if we just had what my neighbor has, then we would be happy. I remember very vividly uh, my grandfather sharing this story with me. Um, his neighbor was an unbeliever and he always tried to share the gospel with his neighbor. And one day his neighbor came over and knocked on the door and said, you know, Gerben, I want what you have. My grandfather really looked looked at him quite eagerly, hoping that, you know, this would be about the gospel, that he'd have a, an opportunity to share the good news. And my grandfather's neighbor says, I, I, want, I want an RV like you. I want this RV trailer. Uh, so my grandfather still was able to, to share the gospel with him. But oftentimes, we, we, we fall into this mindset of keeping up with the Joneses. If we just had what everyone else had, then, then we would find ultimate happiness. And of course, the Bible doesn't say that having nice things in and of themselves is evil. But what, is the, what, is, what does the Bible say? The Bible says that it is the love of money that is a root of all kinds of evil. It is the love of material things that leads to destruction. And as the tenth word reminds us, covetousness. Covetousness is when we want what God has not seen fit to bestow upon us. That is the great problem. And I'll be the first to admit that I'm guilty of this uh, at times. When, whenever I visit Pastor Liam and I see his lush green backyard in, in Jersey and I think about my Philly concrete backyard, I, I'll admit I start to get a little, a little jealous. But seriously, when we covet someone else's life, when we covet their possessions, when we covet their circumstances, their, their pedigree, their accomplishments, their family, when we think that if we just had those things, it would lead to our fulfillment, we set ourselves up for disaster. It leads to despair, and that is because there is no happiness in this life apart from Christ. There is no happiness to be found anywhere else but in the everlasting arms of the Lord Jesus. We're reminded of this in John chapter 4 when Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman at the well, a woman who has had five husbands, who is seeking to be known and seeking to be loved and searching for satisfaction in all the wrong places. And Jesus says to her in John chapter 4, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The water that Jesus offers to you and I is the only source of water that can quench our thirst. Everything else in this life will leave us parched and wanting more. It will lead us to despair. Tasting what the world has to offer and expecting it to satisfy us is like drinking salt water at sea when you're stranded at sea. It not only leaves you parched and wanting more, but it makes you physically sick. As St. Augustine reminds us, our hearts will be restless until they find their resting place in God. Well, secondly, what is the antidote to covetousness? What, what do we now put on in Christ? If God calls us to put off covetousness, we put on contentment. If the root of covetousness is being discontent with God's providence, we kill the sin of covetousness by learning contentment in God's providence. Contentment is hard for us as Christians. Our sinful nature inclines us to grumble and complain like Israel in the wilderness. God, why did you bring us out here to kill us for lack of food? Oh, that we would have stayed in Egypt. At least they fed us there. At least we were, we were nourished in Egypt. And then the Lord provides food. He provides manna from heaven. And they grumble and complain again for the lack of options on the menu. We want meat. We want more. We want fill in the blank. Israel's history is a case study for us of discontentment. When we grumble and complain, we are like a child who sits in his father's lap and slaps him across the face. And little does this child realize that it is actually his father's knee that that even holds him up, that even supports him, that enables him to slap him across the face. And so it is with God, the very breath that we use to hurl words of grievance against God, the very breath in our lungs that we use to utter complaints, that breath is only sustained by the grace of God. If it were not for the very active governance of Christ that upholds every molecule together, even at this moment, we would all perish. And so we must learn to be content with God's plan for our lives. We must not covet what God has not seen fit to give to us. Listen to the way the writer to the Hebrews calls us to contentment. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So why are we called to contentment? Why why are we called to be content? Is it because it will make us principally more happy? Is Is it that being content will make us a more agreeable person? No, look look carefully at how Paul grounds this imperative in the indicative. He says, Be content with what you have. That's the imperative. And why should we be content? Here's the indicative. 
He says, be content with what you have because God has declared, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Brothers and sisters, we can find godly contentment when we understand the sure reality of God's pervasive presence in our lives. When you lie down, he is with you. When you rise, he is with you. When you go through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with you. And as you approach the bed of death, he is even with you unto the end. And so our contentment is rooted for Paul. Our contentment is rooted in understanding who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. And the writer to the Hebrews goes on to say that when we are content in Christ, we have no fear of man. In the words of that great Reformation hymn that uh, we sang at the beginning of our service this evening, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. The writer to the Hebrews reminds us that when we understand the root of godly contentment, that God is with us. We have nothing to fear. We, we have no fear of man. What's the worst they could do? They could kill us, the body they may kill. But the truth that our souls will abide for eternity in the presence of Jesus will give us courage to stand fast in the moment of trial, in the hour of temptation. God is our helper in our time of distress. And more pointedly, the Apostle Paul reminds us that the secret to godly contentment is our union with Christ. And this is so significant and this should bring so much delight and happiness to you in your Christian life when we, when we understand this. Look at, what, look at the way Paul describes this in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What does Paul say is the secret to facing God's providence in your life? What's the anchor for Paul in the storms of life? Is it, is it self-help books? Is it pulling up his bootstraps, stiffening up his upper lip and just saying, I can do this, I've got this? No, for Paul... The secret to facing God's providence, the secret to finding contentment in life, no matter the circumstances, is our union with Christ. And I know this verse is often misquoted. Uh, Doing all things through Christ doesn't mean we can jump off a bridge and expect to fly. No, union with Christ means that, uh, that we have been crucified with Christ, that we have been raised with him unto newness of life. That the spirit of Christ now dwells in our hearts. And that as children of God who have been baptized into the sufferings of Christ, we can face every trial. Why can we face those trials? Because in our union with him, we know that he will bring us to the end. He will finish the work that he began in us. Not us, not of our own strength, not in our own how-to, but through Christ strengthens us. 
And our union with Christ centers us. It it keeps our eyes fixed on things that are above. The sin of covetousness, the obsession with wanting more for ourselves in the here and now, it seeks to make imminent what is eternal. When we covet, we demand heaven on earth. When we covet, we suffer really from spiritual amnesia. We forget that we are pilgrims passing through a strange and foreign land. And so our union with Christ, as we're seeking to learn godly contentment, it reminds us that even as we sit here in these pews, death awaits us all. As Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Brothers and sisters, in our union with Christ, we must remember and keep our eyes fixed above because death awaits us all. And we bring nothing into this life and we can take nothing with us. Death is inescapable. And how foolishly we often live and pretend that this is it. That this is all there is. And we live like the rich fool that Jesus specifically rebukes for his covetousness in Luke chapter 12. We we store up wealth for ourselves here on earth thinking that we will live forever. Thinking that that these goods, these material possessions will, will last for an eternity. We say to ourselves like that rich fool, soul. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And yet God says, fool, this night your soul is required of you. Jesus reminds us to live with content hearts, knowing that at any moment, God could take it all away. And the challenge for us brothers and sisters, is will we bless the Lord through plenty and in want? Will we, like Job, even when all of our wealth, all of our possessions, all that we have is stripped away, will we still be able to say, blessed be the name of the Lord who gives and takes away? Christian contentment relentlessly seeks first the kingdom of God, trusting that God will provide for all of our needs. And so we hold on to this, we we hold on to things in this life very loosely. This life is a vapor. We're here today, gone tomorrow, and there's no sense in amassing an empire for ourselves so we can sit back and kick back and relax. We must remember that eternity hangs in the balance. And we must pray for hearts of contentment that are satisfied in Christ. Because that is the only place where we will find true satisfaction. May may we delight in Christ as he delights in us. May Christ be the chief object of our joy. And may we, with the psalmist, sing a prayer of contentment, which we find in, in Psalm 16. The Lord is my chosen, chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot.
The lines have fallen in pleasant places for me. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Amen. Let's pray together. Indeed, Father, the lines have fallen in pleasant places for us, even when we don't see it, even when we don't understand your providence, even when we don't understand why we suffer, even when we don't understand why we experience affliction in this life. We ask that you would teach us to delight in you, that we would not desire things that you have not given to us. Teach us to walk in your ways and to set our minds on the things that are above, where you are. May the desires of this world, which is passing away, grow strangely dim. And may the glories of heaven appear all the more real to us as we await the day when Christ will return. For to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen.